Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. A look back at a year of war in Europe and a look forward to what the future may bring. This is the State of Ukraine from NPR News. As the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine comes and goes, we want to give you something a little different in this feed. NPR's Leila Fadel, along with a team of editors and producers, have created an audio documentary pulling together a variety of views and opinions on the war in Ukraine, what it has meant, and where it's going. While it's longer than our normal podcast, we think it's worth your time. Here's Leila. It's been 12 months since Russia invaded Ukraine, a challenge to the global order not seen since World War II. A signal to the world that Russian President Vladimir Putin's ambitions lie beyond his country's borders. Not only was the attack a step toward expanding his global influence, but a manifestation of his own obsession with Ukraine. In his view, it belongs to Russia. Many expected when the invasion began, Ukraine's capital would fall in days. But Ukrainians fought back, and they've continued to fight. In the next hour, we'll reflect on the year that has passed and what the future may be. First, we look back to the days before the first explosion. Then, people in Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, lived under a blanket of uneasy denial. NPR's Joanna Kakissis was there. I was walking around, everything looked like completely business as usual, you know, people walking around, shopping, going to cafes, streets were full of traffic, and nobody was, like, taping up their windows or putting up barriers in the streets or anything like that. People were absolutely living their lives. But just beneath the surface, I think if you went to certain people and spent enough time with people, you would notice something was off. A widespread attack into Ukraine by Russia could happen at any hour now as Russian forces are massing on three sides of the country. Is this an act of war or the continuation of the same conflict that's been happening there for the past eight years? Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is trying to reassure his people. You need to breathe, calm down. There's no need to rush to buy buckwheat and matches. Breathe. Calm down. Still, the anxiety quietly grew. In the days before the war, Joanna hiked with a Ukrainian friend, Misha Smatana. And we were walking up these steps and getting a, just this beautiful view of a Kiev. A Kiev is a city with just gorgeous architecture and parks. And we had this panorama view. And I saw that, you know, Misha stopped as we were walking up one of these steep steps. <laughs> and he, he, he was out of breath. And, and I thought that was weird because he walked the hills of Kiev like every day. But when I looked at him, it looked like he'd seen a ghost. I mean, his face was white, and it was like a chill had passed through him. And he said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, Joanne. I can, I can feel it in my bones that something really terrible is going to happen. It just feels like these are our last days of life as we know it. That's what it sounded like in Kiev this morning as Ukrainians faced down the reality of a Russian invasion. Over the past few hours, I've seen explosions in the sky. I've felt the shaking of the windows. We now hear the approaching sound of fighting. We can hear the occasional bit of faint gunfire. We don't know what is going to happen next. We've seen People rushed to the borders if they had the means. Men between 18 and 60 were ordered to stay back in case they were needed to fight. The refugees were a sea of women, children, and the elderly. Cars lined up for miles. People waited for more than 48 hours in the cold. Some abandoned their vehicles and walked across borders with just what they could carry. People are pouring out of Ukraine as Russia rains missiles down on the country. And it and is impossible to estimate the number of people on the move, but it is big. Just women and children and fewer men than I have ever seen in a refugee crisis. By the time they cross, they're just exhausted. They're freezing. You act like an animal, you know. 
I have no idea how, how do you de- decide something in this situation. You just do. I hope that uh, it will finish soon because we need our fathers here in our homes. We want to stay in our country. In, we, we want to be uh, freedom from Russia occupation and we hope uh, that our father will come back alive. Again, NPR's Joanna Kakissis. It was chaotic. I mean, people were running over with their children, largely women and children. Some mothers were actually just giving their children to friends on the other side of the border and going back and, to support their husbands. And I saw grandparents coming over with grandchildren, in many cases with mothers choosing to stay back with their husbands. And those were really wrenching moments to see children crying. Obviously, they're with their grandparents, but they've just been ripped away from their parents, and they're going to this new country. But it was a crush to get the most vulnerable people out of uh, Ukraine. Um, I I remember meeting these elderly women, and one of them had had just had her leg amputated, and she said, they made me leave. I was just waiting for my prosthetic leg to come, and I had decided that if the Russians invade, I'm going to beat them with my prosthetic leg, and I want to be back. (laughs) I want to be back in my hometown. And she lived somewhere in western Ukraine, and she was defiant. She was like a warrior to the core um, and had been taken out by force by her daughter, who was worried about her because obviously she can't walk. But she didn't want to leave. I remember we were getting into Poland around the same time, Mm -hmm. and I was at a train station, and a train comes in, and this guy gets off, calls himself the Big Lebowski because he loves that movie. (laughs) Uh, What's your name? I prefer to call myself Lebowski. (laughs) You prefer to call yourself Lebowski? Yes. And he was one of the only young men, because he wasn't 18, that I saw among these women and children and older people. And he said, I had to make a choice. Do I stay behind and fight with my father? Or do I leave with my mother? I had to leave because I didn't want my father or me to possibly see each other die in the most horrible ways. And he ultimately chose to leave with his mother. You shouldn't have to think about that at 16. Well, I did. Everything Ukrainian officials said was not going to happen was now happening. Now, this wasn't the wartime government of today. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was not that popular. And his government said the U.S. was stirring the pot by trying to warn the world of an attack. In the month before the war, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly spoke to Yana Yarosh, a 32-year-old in Kyiv. Are you confident in the government here? (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) No. (laughs) That's a good joke, actually, to be confident in in the government. (laughs) No, no. Personally, I do not trust what they say. NPR's Frank Langfitt. The message from the government was this isn't happening. And maybe 10 days before the invasion, I was in Kherson, and President Zelensky was there. Suddenly, he comes out, he's standing on the street, and it's not, it's not professional at all. Somebody puts a table out, we put our mics out, and what you get is not remotely the leader that the rest of the world has gotten over the last 11, 12 months. That's why I can't answer you very simple. It's not, it's not, it's not simple. It, it, it can be each day. He like was easily flustered. He has real trouble convincing people that the Russians aren't going to invade. He gets into an argument with a Fox News reporter who gets the better of him. I didn't say wrong. The translation was wrong. I didn't say the word wrong information. I, I, I said I said. And it really felt like amateur hour. And I got to tell you, among the reporters there, certainly among probably some of the Ukrainians as well, there was a real sinking feeling. Like, if this comes, this could be really bad. That's it. Thank you, sir. I do remember meeting a lot of Ukrainians in the early days of the war who, just before the war, didn't like him, yeah. talked about corruption in the new administration, and then they were like, but he stayed. Yeah. I think everybody remembers that video in the first couple of days where he says, we're all here. Mm-hmm. And the President Zelensky you describe has transformed into what everybody now sees as a war hero in his fatigues. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting that day because he was actually wearing fatigues for one of the first times anybody had seen him. 
And then, of course, he started lifting weights, he grew a beard, he sort of transformed himself into this, the wartime leader that everybody now all over the globe knows. Zelensky transformed, and so did the country. Civilian-run checkpoints formed overnight with piles of sandbags and makeshift barricades in the road. Paranoia permeated neighborhoods as people searched for Russian collaborators, what they called saboteurs. Students signed up to fight. Painters became Molotov cocktail makers. Welders donned fatigues. The country was at war. And what's remarkable is you see an entire country change on a 24-hour cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I come through a, a small village, and there's a community center, and there are all these old farmers standing outside a Soviet-era culture center, and they're waiting there to join up and get yeah. automatic weapons and be sent to the front. Obviously, none of these people have ever done anything like this in their lives. Yeah. And I remember meeting the commander and talking to him, and he was just ashen. And I said, what are you going to do? Do you have enough weapons for them? And he said, we need anti-aircraft weapons, we need all kinds of weapons. And you could just see how overwhelmed he was and looking in this theater with what he had to work with. You know, I do wonder about the people I met at enlistment camps in the very early days, like an interior design student who probably had never fired a weapon in his entire life with a bag of candy and a tin cup going to enlist. Like, where is he today, I wonder? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Wherever I would be sent, I don't care. You're not scared? (laughs) No. Why? They came to our land, so they have to be scared, not, not us. Everybody's a different person today in Ukraine than they were 12 months ago. And some people, many people, have risen to the occasion. Today, it's believed tens of thousands of Ukrainians, both civilians and fighters, are dead. Millions of people have been driven from their homes, and our reporters have been there to document it all. Our work wouldn't be possible without our Ukrainian colleagues, like Hanna Palomarenko. This work gives you the chance to see everything. I've seen a lot of sorrow, you know, and, 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 and tears and, uh, and deaths, honestly. But, uh, but also it gives you the chance to see how people overcome it. And it's, it, this is what is the most important for me, because it happens in my country. The only thing different from, from the reporters who come here, uh, that I don't have the days off. When they leave the country, I still, I'm still here and I follow the news. I do the same thing I do for work, but I do it for my life. So my work and my life now are very close. It's almost the same. <laughs> Coming up, you'll hear the view from Russia, how the world begins to hear and see evidence of atrocities by Russia's army, and General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, reflects on the way forward. This is an NPR special report, Russia's war in Ukraine, one year on. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This is an NPR special report, Russia's war in Ukraine, one year on. I'm Leila Fadel. In February 2022, Russians were also caught off guard by the war. Julia Yaffe, a Russian-born American journalist, was calling her family, her sources, everyone she knew. Everybody I spoke to inside Russia was telling me there wouldn't be a war and that Western diplomats and intelligence agencies were being hysterical. Hmm. The same sort of things we were hearing from Ukrainians. Uh, Yeah, except I think Russians were even more convinced that it was not going to happen. Even among people who are really anti-Putin, they they were like, yeah, but he can't really invade Ukraine. That would just be too much. Okay, yes, he's imprisoned all these opposition activists and journalists. And yes, he shut down democracy and freedom of the press. But this would just be crazy. He wouldn't do this. 
There was a real disbelief. And when the war really started in the early morning hours, I think people found out as it happened from uh, people messaging each other from social media. And in the months since the war, we found out that people at the highest levels of the Russian government found out the same way. People in the presidential administration, people in the foreign ministry. I've heard that a an American television reporter was supposed to interview Sergei Narushkin, who is the head of the SVR, the Russian spy foreign spy agency. They were supposed to interview him on February 24th. Wow. And the interview was only canceled on the morning of the 24th because they didn't know it was coming. I mean, even the soldiers who were doing the fighting didn't know what they were doing. We've read so many accounts now in the years since the war started of soldiers who in the very late hours of February 23rd had their phones taken away, were put on a truck or in a tank and only found out that they were at war in Ukraine when they started being shot at. Wow. It's been a year now from inside Russia. How is this war being viewed? There are a lot of people who support the war. There are a lot of people who don't want to think about the war. And there are people who are sent off to fight or their relatives are sent off to fight, but they feel they have absolutely no choice in the matter because otherwise violence will be meted out against them. Hmm. We did see in the first few months of this war uh, dissent, but also really effective crackdowns mm-hmm. on that dissent. What does the anti-war movement look like today? There is none. Hmm. The anti-war movement is outside of Russia, or it is in jail, or it is too scared to rear its head. There was a couple who was at a restaurant, and between themselves they were talking about supporting Ukraine and being against the war, and fellow diners called the police on them, and the police arrived, slammed them into the ground, handcuffed them, and took the woman away. College students are ratting out their fellow students for being against the war. Teachers are reporting on their students to the police, and students are telling on their teachers. There is an atmosphere of fear and paranoia inside Russia that is akin to maybe the late 1930s, where people are actively reporting on each other Hmm. for anti-war sentiment. And that's the, I mean, that's what a totalitarian or, you know, a dictatorial regime does. It makes you terrified to speak up. And Putin has done a very effective job of terrifying Russians against speaking up. And those who have spoken up are either in jail or have fled the country en masse. So everybody who's left is either in agreement or too scared to speak up. In Ukraine, evidence emerges of atrocities committed by Russian troops. There's a town outside Kyiv called Bucha. Here's NPR's Nathan Rod. We had heard stories of Russians targeting civilians, of mass graves, of summary executions, of finding dead civilians. We knew that that was kind of happening, but nobody had really been to these areas to kind of see what was left. Bucha was liberated by Ukrainians, and Nate was among busloads of reporters driven in to see. Every window had been blasted out. Bridges that had been destroyed. Like giant craters in the ground that you could park a car in. And There was one street that we walked down in particular where there was so much ash on the street, it felt like you were walking on sand. You know, it felt like you were walking on the beach. And that was just ash from burnt homes and burnt equipment uh, in the middle of the city streets. At the end of that street, we just saw a guy who was kind of sitting outside watching all of us journalists walk around and take pictures and everything. And I just kind of walked up to him and started talking to him with the help of our translator, Luca. And and the guy was just immediately like, follow me. You want to come in here? You know, we walked through his yard to his backyard over broken glass and the whole side of his house is blasted open. I mean, it almost looks like a kid's dollhouse where you can like see the cross section of the house you're like looking in it 
maybe the whole side of the house was gone. When Russian troops first came into Bucha, his story that he told us was that essentially, like, they threw a grenade into his house, yelled for people to come out, started a fire that was in their living room. I started uh, extinguishing the fire. I tried to. You can see it right there. Fire happened. He and his daughter and his son-in-law had raced outside and were trying to put out the fire. There's three soldiers. They, they yelled. They yelled at us, said, uh, hands up. I, we showed them our hands, walked out. And Russian troops came up, started questioning them, asking them, where are the Nazis? Where are the Nazis? Where are the Nazis? And, you know, they were all like, we're not Nazis. I don't know what you're talking about. He had this horrific story. Basically, his son-in-law was um, taken out through his front gate. So they took uh, my daughter's husband, Oleg, outside. They uh, ripped the clothes off him put him on the knees and shoot him in the head. And his body laid there for weeks, um, right in front of right in front of his house. I was in the mood of sitting, after sitting in a month in the basement, to just, uh, I wanted to walk outside and just to get shot because I couldn't deal with it anymore. The language war crime was being used everywhere. Ukrainians, from the first time we got off the bus in Bucha, they were like, we are here to show you Russian war crimes. I think a lot of international leaders, right after Bucha, that's when you started hearing war crimes. Uh, like That was the, the moment that put that kind of into a, the conversation, I feel like. Tamasha Gessen, a staff writer at The New Yorker, it was all so familiar from their years as a journalist in Russia. I had done this kind of work 20 and 30 years earlier in in Chechnya, uh, during the first war in Chechnya in 1994-1996, during the second war in Chechnya in 1999-2001. And I had seen Russian troops behaving this way, and I had interviewed survivors of Russian war crimes who had told the same kinds of stories in Chechnya as they were now telling me, in Ukraine. And um, I knew that it is normal for the Russian military to behave this way. This is how Russia prosecutes wars. This past year, Gessen heard those stories again, in the Kiev suburbs of Bucha and Erpin. The people I was interviewing, for the most part, were not wealthy at all. They were poor people. They were people, they were not the gentrifiers. They were the gentrified mm. of Bucha and Erpin. And it made perfect sense once I thought about it. People who had the means left as the Russian military advanced. People who had the experience of traveling left as the Russian military advanced. Mm -hmm. And so war crimes disproportionately happened to the poor. Not exclusively, but but disproportionately. And so the people uh, who survived war crimes in the aftermath are also completely financially devastated. Mm. They are in extreme need. They have been plunged in, into total poverty. And, and what they actually want to, want to see is, is compensation. When it comes to accountability, does that, what does that look like? Can it go as, as high as Putin? And is there a way to hold the president of Russia accountable? So for some people, it's most important to see Putin and people who actually gave important orders prosecuted. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen unless Russia is militarily defeated. I think for some other people, it is more important to see the people who pulled the trigger, the people who fired, who personally fired rockets at apartment buildings, the people who personally tortured, raped, and executed civilians mm. to be prosecuted. There's an argument that that's not so important because they're not in charge. They're just part of this giant sort of organism that carries out aggression. But there's a counter-argument that the whole reason that this is possible is because individuals are never punished. Hmm. I mean, Russia has, you describe, documenting these same kinds of crimes in Chechnya 
then again, they happened in Aleppo. And there has never been accountability or a red line cross that the world has reacted to in this way. Why? The facile answer is that the world doesn't care as much about um, Chechnya, which is Muslim, an obscure part of Russia. I'm afraid the same can be said of Syria. The world doesn't care as much about people perceived as non-white and, and, and Muslim. I think that there's a lot of truth to what I just said. I don't think it's, it's not the complete answer. Yeah. It also has a lot to do with opportunity. It was nearly impossible for international investigators and journalists to get to Aleppo, to get to Chechnya during the second war in Chechnya. The Russian human rights group Memorial did bring a number of cases to the European Court in Human Rights against Russian war criminals in Chechnya and won some of those cases. But the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over what Russia was doing and what is legally its own territory. So part of it is access, part of it is jurisdictional issues. Ukraine is, in a you know, it sounds horrible to say it, but there's in a way an opportunity to finally hold Russia accountable for what its military has been committing systematically for at least 30 years. Alexandra Matvichuk is the head of the Center for Civil Liberties, which won a Nobel Peace Prize for documenting war crimes in Ukraine. In this war, all Ukrainians know that we are fighting for freedom and for democracy, and we are paying the highest price for this chance. Now, Matvichuk's work is also about protecting the values of her country. The longer the war drags on, she says, the greater the risk of becoming a mirror of the opposite side. Putin uh, tried to attempt the whole world, not only Ukrainian, that rule of law, democracy, and human rights are fake values. He tried to demonstrate that only physical, brutal force matters. So in post-war Ukraine, when we win, we have to restore not only broken infrastructure, roads, residential buildings, and uh, destroyed Ukrainian cities. We need to restore the human belief that rule of law is essential. Ukraine must, she says, win the war of values. In order to do it, we need to demonstrate justice because then we will be able very honestly to say that, yes, it was a period of temporal law disorder when nothing worked and even the whole UN system couldn't stop Russian atrocities, but we fix it. We punish war criminals, because rule of law is essential and justice is possible, even though delayed in time. So where does this war go now? I pose that question to General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, Putin has shown no signs that he's interested in ending it. And in fact, it seems like he's more determined than ever, despite U.S. sanctions, Russia's economies rebounding, despite the way that Ukraine has repelled Russian forces. They haven't given up. They've annexed more land, Russians. So what lever have you not pulled yet that you could pull to get Putin to give up, to change tack? Uh, First of all, there have been indicators, public indicators from Russia uh, that they would be willing to go to the negotiating table. And then they said under the conditions that the areas that they have occupied become Russian territory. Uh, So that's an unacceptable condition for the Ukrainian people. Uh, And you're correct. Putin has not indicated any sense of a willingness to give up his objectives, except to say that his initial objective was to overrun the country of Ukraine and to topple the Zelensky government, seize the capital of Kyiv, all of which he failed to do. So he has actually adjusted his ambitions down to remain in control of those currently Russian-occupied areas. Uh, So we'll see. And I think that the battlefield, as difficult as it is and as bloody as it is and as high casualty producing as it is, uh, I think is uh, something that's going to play a very major factor in both President Zelensky and President Putin's calculations as to whether or not to go to a negotiating table and when and under what conditions. What Putin has shown is he has no problem throwing people, losing people in this war. If this is a war of attrition and Russia has more people 
then does Russia in the long term win a war of attrition? Hard to say. Um, Russia is a bigger country, a large army uh, on paper. Uh, however, I would tell you that Russia has suffered really significant casualties, killed and wounded, and they've suffered a lot of leadership casualties, especially at the junior officer level, the company commander, battalion commander level. Uh, and their morale is not high. Their training is very, very poor. They're conscripted. Uh, I think he put out a call for two or 300,000 uh, troops. Those troops uh, receive very, very little training. So uh, whether or not Russia is able to accomplish whatever it is that their objectives are or what they've been adjusted to, I think that's uh, very much in doubt from a military perspective. Now, Ukrainians talk about an all-out victory, taking back every piece of land that's been annexed by Russia. Is that possible? From a military standpoint, if you look at the number of Russian forces that are in Russian-occupied Ukraine, this is a very, very, very difficult military task, and it should not be underestimated. On February 24th, 2022, did you expect that in a year you would be talking about a war of attrition? between Russia and Ukraine? As I look back, uh, one of the comments I made to a very senior Russian prior to the invasion, trying to persuade, and I failed to persuade him not to invade, but told him that the Ukrainian people are going to fight you, and they're going to fight you hard. Uh, The Ukrainian people have been free since 1991. And if you look at someone who is my age, Uh, 64, uh, they were in their 30s at the time Ukraine became free. So they were probably leaders of the movement to free Ukraine. And they do not want to be occupied by a foreign power. And what I had said at the time was, you might get into that country in 14 days, but you're not coming out. You're going to have body bags going back for 14 years. Uh, It's going to be a bloody, bloody affair. And that's what it turned out to be. Now, I don't think this war is going to last 14 years, per se. But Ukraine is not going to quit, nor should they. Uh, There's a lot at stake here. For Ukraine, it's an existential fight, and it's imperative that Ukraine remain free and independent and sovereign. That's in the interest of, obviously, in the interest of Ukraine, but it's in the interest of Europe. It's in the interest, really, of the world. Uh, There are many people who dispute that, um, but uh, I think that's a, a, a fundamental principle for which this war is being fought. Coming up, we hear the reflections of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, then take a look at the implications of Ukraine's war on the global economy and also the fears of another possible invasion by a different global power. This is an NPR special report, Russia's war in Ukraine one year on. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This is an NPR special report, Russia's war in Ukraine, one year on. I'm Leila Faldil. Today, more than 8 million Ukrainians are refugees scattered across Europe. More than 5 million are internally displaced in their own country. And there's no clear estimate on how many Ukrainian civilians and soldiers have been killed, but tens of thousands are believed to be dead. We asked Secretary of State Antony Blinken what the world's responsibility is to Ukrainians at this moment. The Ukrainians, because of their extraordinary courage and resilience, have done a remarkable job, not just in repelling the aggression, but taking back a significant amount of territory that was taken from them since February 23rd of, uh, of, of last year. Right now, it is a, in many ways, horrific war of, uh, of attrition with terrible losses, and we see huge losses on the, uh, on the Russian side. I think here's the challenge. No one, no one, wants peace more and more quickly than the Ukrainian people, because they're the ones who are suffering from this aggression. But it also has to be a just peace and a durable peace. It has to be a peace that reflects the principles of the United Nations Charter, uh, that preserves Ukraine's territorial integrity. Uh, Because if we ratify the seizure of land by uh, another country and say, that's okay, that will open a Pandora's box around the world for would-be aggressors that uh, will say, well, we'll do the same thing and get away with it. 
There was one Russia expert we spoke to, and a lot of Ukrainians we spoke to in Ukraine watchers who say the U.S. has done a lot, mm. billions of dollars mm -hmm. in aid and weaponry for Ukraine, and but it has not been decisive and it has not been enough. And that ends up being a win for Russia in the long term, mm. if it keeps going. Do you agree with that assessment or can you respond to that assessment? So from day one, as I said, what we've uh, tried to do, and not just us, dozens of countries uh, around the world, we tried to make sure that the Ukrainians have in their hands what they need to deal with the, uh, the Russian aggression. And we put in place... Uh, a, a pretty remarkable system by the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, um, to coordinate the efforts of dozens of countries when it comes to supplying Ukraine with what it needs. And if you look at the evolution of that, it really has been uh, remarkable in making sure, again, not just that they have an individual weapon uh, in, their, um, in their arsenal, but that they're trained to use them, that it can be maintained. It doesn't do a lot of good if you give them a very sophisticated uh, weapon system and in, in the absence of maintenance, it falls apart in a week. And then the way all of this is used is very important, too. And one of the things that countries are doing now is training Ukrainian forces. But none of that is like flipping a light switch. Uh, it takes a very strong, coordinated effort. And ultimately, the Russians have huge strengths that they brought into this, including sheer numbers and a willingness, apparently, by President Putin to throw hundreds of thousands of young people into this, never mind that they're getting killed and wounded. So ultimately, I fundamentally believe this. The biggest difference maker is that Ukrainians are fighting for their country, for their land, for their future. The Russians are not. And that's what's going to make the ultimate difference here. We're speaking a year into this war. And when it first started, um, there was a question, is, is the global world order changing mm -hmm. With this, with this war. And a year in, when you look at the world stage, has it fundamentally changed? I mean, we're seeing countries trying to join NATO that we never imagined, mm -hmm. Finland and Sweden. We're seeing China and Russia's alliance strengthening. Mm -hmm. I mean, how has it shifted things um, on the world stage? Well, this, this is an inflection point for a whole variety of reasons, but this is one of them. I think it's clear that the post-Cold War era is over, and there is now a, a competition underway to shape what comes next. We believe strongly that the future for, for peace, for stability, for opportunity requires that uh, there be some general understandings about what the rules of the road are. And we had, uh, we had those rules, we had those understandings, very imperfect, for um, decades after World War II. In fact, the whole purpose of the international order that grew up after World War II was to make sure we wouldn't have a World War III, that this couldn't be repeated. And we often hear from... Chinese colleagues or Russian colleagues in different ways, that this is somehow invented in the West and they're not a part of it. That's absolutely wrong. This order was founded on the United Nations Charter and the basic principles in that charter. It was founded on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I'm emphasizing the word universal. They all signed on to it. This system, for all its imperfections, worked, but now it's being challenged. And some of these countries are trying to either destroy the rules which Russia is doing in Ukraine, or it's trying to rewrite them in ways that, that are inimical to, to some of our own values and interests. In a year, will we be still speaking about war with Russia? Um, like so many people around the world, um, I strongly, strongly, strongly hope not. And okay. certainly we will do everything we can to make sure that, that that's not the case, that we're not talking about this in, in the same way a year from now. Part of it is making sure that the world doesn't normalize this. One of the things that strikes me the most is that day in, day out, uh, there is this horrific aggression that's taking place. Literally, uh, the Russians intentionally trying to destroy the entire energy infrastructure of the country so that people don't have lights, that they freeze, um, that uh, they don't have uh, electricity. Um, it's a, a horrific aggression against um, men, women, children, uh, including millions who are not, not in the fight uh, directly. Uh, we see people being exfiltrated to Russia, including children separated from their families who are taken uh, to Russia and put up for adoption in Russia. We can't let ourselves be anesthetized to these kinds of things. And of course, there are so many places in the world where horrific things are happening 
and we need to be engaged uh, on all of them. We need to make sure that we're addressing the second and third order consequences of this uh, Russian aggression mm -hmm. for people who are feeling greater food insecurity, uh, energy insecurity, and we are. Uh, but I think the most, most important thing is this can't be normalized. And my strongest hope, which I think, again, the Ukrainian people feel even more strongly, is that uh, we and they and the world are in a different place a year from now. This war has been felt well beyond Ukraine's borders. Russia had provided Europe with 40% of its natural gas. Ukraine was the fifth largest exporter of wheat in the world. The ripple effects of the war have made life more expensive. It seeped into homes across the world. It has been one of the most volatile quarters on Wall Street in recent memory. Russia's invasion of Ukraine had a profound effect on markets. Higher prices at the gas pump and at the grocery store. What we're seeing today with Russia is the potential for what could be the largest oil supply disruption ever. The cost of natural gas used to heat homes has spiked. In Prague, in the Czech Republic, thousands protest the costs. The energy prices are unbelievable here. In Krakow, Poland, people burn what they can find to stay warm. There's a coal shortage. People are trying to collect anything which has a heating value. I mean, anything meaning rubber tires, uh, meaning old furniture. Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya are on the brink of famine. The main cause is drought, but the shortage of grain caused by the war only makes it worse. NPR's Jason Bobian. Severely malnourished children are filling the intensive care units of local hospitals. Doctors say some kids are already starving to death. We are living in a very hard condition. I go to the city to do a laundry, laundry service at home. After, if I get it, it's okay, I'll buy some food and come back to my family and cook them. If I get nothing, I go back, then all the children, I tell them to go to bed to sleep with hunger. And then there are the fears of a different invasion in a different part of the world. Many in Taiwan see uncomfortable parallels between their island, which is off the coast of China, and Ukraine. For many people in Taiwan, there's been a kind of jolting effect to the, the possibility that an invasion or attack by China could be more when than if. Officials say China won't have the military capability to invade Taiwan until 2027. Capability, of course, doesn't mean they'll actually do it. The Ukrainian people are very brave. And we are taking the war in Ukraine into a very serious uh, internal discussions. The voice you just heard is Joseph Wu, Taiwan's foreign minister. China has long seen Taiwan as its own and pursued a, quote, reunification policy to eventually bring the island under Beijing's control. They have expansionist uh, motivation. They want to continue to expand uh, their sphere of influence they want to continue to expand their power. The Chinese ambition is not stopped at Taiwan. The Chinese want to go to East China Sea. Uh, they change the status quo, uh, especially in disputed area uh, that used to be administered by Japan. And it is even much worse in the South China Sea. And I think it's a wake-up call for a lot of uh, uh, like-minded partners in this region uh, that we need to stop the authoritarianism from expanding further. When you look at the situation in Ukraine right now, what message does it send to China with what the United States and other NATO countries have done? Funneled billions of aid in aid and weapons. Is it enough? China wants to find out uh, whether the Western world is determined enough to fight against uh, Russia. And they want to use that to gauge uh, whether they will be able to successfully waging a war against Taiwan or other countries in this region. And if China observed that the Western countries are divided, I think China will be important. We are also very concerned that China might not look at the right lessons uh, they might look at the Russian weaknesses and see how they can improve their military so that they will be able to maintain the capability of uh, launching a war against Taiwan or other countries. In watching the way the U.S. has responded in Ukraine, do you see it 
as a reliable security partner in what could happen in Taiwan and what many are predicting and what you yourself have said is is very possible, an invasion. Uh, the United States is the most reliable security partner of Taiwan. And the kinds of security relations between Taiwan and the United States have deepened, uh, especially after the war started in Ukraine. And uh, we have also acquired uh, lots of uh, weapons for self-defense uh, from the United States. And the United States also helped our soldiers to be trained, uh, but the support uh, provided by the United States has been substantial. And these kinds of support before the war happens is absolutely necessary for us to learn how to fight ourselves. You say before the war happens as if it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I hope uh, the war doesn't happen. Uh, war means devastation. War means disaster for a lot of people. And I'm sure war might also mean disaster for China itself. And I think the international norm is peaceful resolution to any dispute. But China seems to be not following that founding principle of the United Nations. And if we are able to speak to each other in a peaceful way to resolve differences with each other, then there's no need for a war. But we cannot uh, bet on China's goodwill. Uh, we need to prepare for the worst. And Taiwan needs to be prepared uh, to fight alone. Uh, but if uh, there are international community members uh, who are willing to fight together with Taiwan, uh, they will be highly welcomed. But that is not the way we try to prepare. Uh, we try to prepare that Taiwan is able to fight on itself. For Taiwan, Russia's war is a lesson. But for Ukrainians, it's their reality. I saw it last year at a children's hospital in Kyiv. What's your name? Vova. Vova? Vova might be a little hard to understand because his jaw is wired shut, but he still manages a half smile when we meet him. Vova's short for Volodymyr, Volodymyr Karavansky. I ask him about the scar running down the side of his face. What happened here? A bullet grazed his hand, two pierced his back, another his foot. Okay, I see you're pulling up on your back. Is that also you got a bullet here? Wow. They were fleeing their home in a suburb of Kiev when Vova's mother, Natalia, said Russians shelled the car. She screamed, there are children in here. It was too late. Her husband was killed. So was her six-year-old nephew, Maxime. Vova survived. When we met him with our interpreter, Tanya Ostova, he'd already undergone weeks of surgeries. He couldn't walk, and he was bored in his hospital bed. Um, I just don't care about this war. Vova's mom jumps in here. It's just not completely realized what is happening. Yeah. We leave his room. And an hour later, we see him in the lobby. A staff member is pushing him in a wheelchair. After nearly a month in a hospital bed, he's out in the world. Almost a year later, we wanted to know where they ended up. And Tanya helped us find them. Hello. Natalia, how are you? Where are you? Polish. In Poland. And how have you been? I mean, we haven't spoken to you in almost a year. And I remember watching you and your son leave the hospital in Kiev. I'd love to hear... What's happening with your life? How Vova is doing? Yes, he's able to walk now. Uh, he's underwent surgery in June, and in the beginning of July, he just started walking. And um, the only thing left is to underwent uh, like cosmetic surgery, just you know, to get away the scars. How many bullets were in Vova's body? How many have been removed? So we removed four in Kiev, two in Poland, and this one uh, remains. Wow. Seven. Uh-huh. Um, is Vova with you by any chance? Hi, Vova. How are you? Pretty fine. Do you like Poland? Not really. 
It's cold here, the language is difficult, school is different, everything is different. Mm. Vova, you sound so clear. I can tell that your jaw must be better now. Are you feeling better? I heard you're walking again. How are you feeling? Yes, I'm fine now. I underwent rehabilitation. Then I slowly start, uh, started walking again, and I even can run. You can run? Yes, I have a dog, so when I walk with, with her, just I can run and run with her. It sounds like you miss home, though. You miss your house in Ukraine. Do you think you'll go home soon? Yes, I, I will. I believe this war will be over. Our guys kill Putin, and we will go home and live a happy, calm life. Well, it's so nice to talk to you, Vova. Do you mind? Do you mind passing the phone back to your mom for a minute? It's so nice to hear your son speaking so clearly, saying he can run with his dog again. You know, you've been through so much, Natalia, in a year. Do you feel like this war will ever end? I hope so. I really want to go home to visit uh, my husband at the cemetery, his grave, because I haven't, I haven't done this yet. Hmm. Um, Natalia, thank you so much, Natalia and Vova. I hope the next time that we speak that you're in Ukraine and that you have been able to visit your husband's grave and see your home again. We are grateful so that you called us and uh, didn't forget about us. Thanks for listening to this special episode of The State of Ukraine from NPR News. We'll be back here on weekdays with shorter stories on what you need to know about the war and its impacts around the world. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.